thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and also with Dominic Ford. Hello, Dominic. Hello, and this week, how earwax from blue whales can give us an insight into ocean pollution, the parasite that stops mice from being scared of cats, and citizen science will be finding out how you can get involved in some cutting-edge research, from spotting spiders to mapping happiness. And we'd also like to hear from you if you'd like to have a go at our quiz. Our scientific teaser for this week is how many galaxies do you think there are in the known universe? You can get in touch with us with any comments, feedback or questions by tweeting at Naked Scientists or you can email chris at thenakedscientists.com. First, let's take a look at what's been making the science headlines this week. And Chris, what have you got for us? Well, scientists in California have obtained a blue whale and they've used its earwax in order to work out biochemically what has happened to this whale during its lifetime, its exposure to various pollutants and even mercury. Who would have thought that was possible? Earwax, you say? Yeah. Now, bizarrely enough, just like us, whales being mammals, they have a big long ear canal and they make earwax. It's actually known by the chemical and scientific term cerumen, it's a waxy, oily substance. In us, our ear canal is only a few centimetres long at most. In a whale, it's a metre, in a blue whale at least. And this particular blue whale was about 12 years old when it unfortunately uh, died owing to a collision with a boat. The body was recovered to Santa Barbara in California. And the scientists were able to extract this, what's called an ear plug, which is a build-up of this wax. And it turns out that in these whales, the wax is deposited in layers year on year. And so if you cut a section through the plug, which is in this whale about 25 centimetres long, you see a system of almost like tree rings where each layer corresponds to a year or maybe a period of six months of the whale's life. And so what Stephen Trumbull and his colleagues from Bailey University have done, and they've published this week in the journal PNAS, is they've cut thin sections through this earplug and they have extracted the chemicals that are in there and fed them into a sensitive analyzer, and this has enabled them to build up a time profile of what was happening to the testosterone level, to the stress hormone levels, to the levels of various organic pollutants that the, the, the whale even got when it was a baby from its mother, they can see that, and also mercury, which it would have got through probably feeding in areas which are contaminated by industrial waste and things like this. And no one's ever been able to do this for this species before, partly because they're so rare and endangered, but how could you possibly get a biochemical record without taking samples invasively from an animal throughout its life like this? No one ever has. Now we have a potentially a, a technique to get a very clear idea as to what happens to these animals during their lifetime, how they develop, when they reach sexual maturity. And the interesting thing they also say is that 
there are many of these sorts of specimens, these earplugs, in museums. And you could apply the technique they have used to those same specimens, analyse those and then increase your sample size dramatically in order to understand a lot more about this species that we know so little about. Truth is also telling us about the pollution in the water around the whale. Is that also working its way into this wax? That's right. So effectively, and that's a really important point, is where do these chemicals come from in the wax? Well, because the wax is a secretion made by the body, the whale's blood supply deposits those chemicals into the earwax and they're therefore stored there almost like a fossil of what was going on in the whale's body at that moment when the wax was made. Chris, thank you very much. Now, a paper I've been looking at this week is by Christopher Webster from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, also in California. And he's been reporting on the latest observations from the Curiosity rover, which you may remember landed on the Martian surface back last summer in August 2012. And over the past year, it's not just been rolling around Mars's surface taking pictures of stuff. It's also been sniffing the air around it and trying to get a profile of what the Martian atmosphere is made of and what gases are present there. Now, we've known for probably about a century that most of the gas in Mars's atmosphere is carbon dioxide, but there's been a lot of debate about what gases might be there in trace quantities. And there's been a lot of interesting debate in the last decade or so about a particular gas, methane. And what was interesting was that certain ground-based telescopes and also spacecraft in orbit around Mars have suggested that there's quite a lot of methane in Mars's atmosphere, in particular in plumes above particular geographic regions on Mars. Now, on the Earth, we have quite a bit of methane in our atmosphere, and that comes mostly from biological rather than geological processes. About 90% of the methane in our atmosphere basically comes from rotting organic matter. So, so people were quite heartened when they saw this methane, thinking, does this have some kind of biological origin? Yes, I mean, the really exciting question that everyone wants to know is, is there microbial life beneath Mars's surface? We're pretty sure there aren't microbes on its surface, but further down, those microbes might be protected from the quite harsh environment on its surface, and they might thrive down there, and they might produce methane. That might be this methane we're seeing. So, obviously, the fact that Curiosity hasn't seen methane there is a bit of a disappointment in some ways, but it does actually, I think, explain this puzzle that we've had in the last 10 years, because this methane really hasn't made sense. Methane hangs around for hundreds of years, and to see these plumes coming out of geographic regions, you'd assume we'd have an accumulation of centuries' worth of methane in the atmosphere. You'd expect it to have quite a thick methane atmosphere if these plumes had been coming out for, for centuries. So it, it might be a silly question, but is Curiosity perched where these plumes are? That's a very good question. Uh, it's not perched where these plumes were seen coming out, but we have models of the weather on Mars, and we know that if these plumes were coming out over the period of a few years, those would mix all around the globe of Mars, and you'd expect to see it wherever you were on the Martian surface. So why did previous recordings suggest those plumes were there then? What was fooling the instruments, or why were they concluding that it was there if it's not? I think that's the big outstanding question. I was looking into this earlier in the week, and I don't think anyone's got an answer to that yet. Something was clearly being seen. It was looking like methane. It seems it wasn't methane. So now the big question is, what were those spacecraft seeing? How do they know Curiosity is right? I think Curiosity is probably the most reliable um, measurement we have, just because it's there on the surface, it's sniffing the gas, it's got a very modern... Um, spectroscope it's using to determine that composition. So probably um, Curiosity is right. The question is what's been tricking the other spacecraft. 
and there we'll have to leave it. We'll back down on Earth, and thank you, Dominic. This week, salvage experts have been trying to raise the MS Costa Concordia. Now, if you remember, that was a cruise liner that sank near the island of Giglio off the coast of Italy back in January 2012. But how are they actually doing this? Here's Priya Crosby and Matt Burnett. They've got the quickfire science on the Concordia and the salvage operation to try to raise it. At over 290 metres long, 35.5 metres wide, and weighing in at 44,600 tonnes, the Costa Concordia is a similar weight to the Titanic, but much larger. Recovering the Costa Concordia will be the largest and most expensive passenger ship salvage operation ever, and is estimated to have cost £420 million so far. Shipwrecks are usually blown up or sunk, but the Concordia is being recovered in an effort to preserve the nearby Pelagos Sanctuary for marine mammals. 2,200 tonnes of fuel have already been removed from the wreck to avoid environmental contamination. For the last 20 months, the ship has lain on its starboard side, with the port side protruding from the water. The Concordia ran aground on a sea ledge, but could slide off this ledge if disturbed. To prevent this, workers anchored six steel platforms to the seabed underneath the ship to provide a landing pad for it to rest on once righted. 30 metre tall hollow steel boxes were then attached to the exposed side of the boat. These boxes will initially contain water, which will be replaced with air to provide the buoyancy needed to refloat the wreck. Salvagers have used a system of pulleys, chains and counterweights looped under the ship to pull it upright. The next stage of the salvage operation is to attach custom-made steel boxes to the previously submerged side of the ship. Water can then be emptied from these boxes, allowing the ship to be refloated. Experts estimate that these boxes should be in place by next spring and hope to complete the salvage operation by summer 2014. Matt Burnett and Priya Crosby. And you can grab all of our Quickfire Science episodes as their own podcasts from our website at nakedscientist.com slash quickfirescience. It's interesting. Did you watch the time-lapse video they've put of the boat writing itself phenomenal isn't it as it it writes itself and you can see the water level along the side of the ship it's phenomenal as it comes up and you think my goodness there's tens of thousands of tons of material rolling like that and the the south african guy who was the spearhead behind that recovery operation said it was a tense moment (laughs) i mean i think he actually got quite emotional when he saw it come up because there's always a risk with something that big it could have just sheared off along its length and not rolled in one piece so it was a phenomenal piece of work Especially having been in the water for so long, you don't know what condition that metal is going to be in. Indeed. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and with Dominic Ford. If you'd like to get in touch with us with any thoughts, comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is chris at thenakedscientists.com. You can also find us on Twitter, that's at Naked Scientists, and we have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash thenakedscientists. About a third of people around the world are infected with the parasite toxoplasma. This can be picked up from undercooked meat or contact with soil that has been contaminated with cat faeces. There are a range of health consequences for humans, but when mice are infected, it alters their behaviour and makes them lose their fear of cats. But does eliminating the parasite from the cat's body reverse this effect? Wendy Ingram is at the University of California at Berkeley. She did the work. Hello, Wendy. Hello. So why does toxoplasmosis affect mice like this? 
the parasite naturally wants to be in a cat. The cat is its primary host, and it's in the cat gut where it's able to sexually reproduce and create billions of infectious cysts that then can move throughout the environment and soil and spread much better than if when it's infecting any other mammal or like a mouse, it can only move from one animal to one animal. So cats are the, the target location for this, this brain parasite. In order for it to complete its life cycle, once it's in a mouse or, or a rat, it needs that mouse or rat to be eaten by a cat. So the behavior manipulation is uh, a perfect way for the parasite to get to its target location. So by changing the behavior of the mouse and making it lose its fear of cats, because mice are normally very scared of the smell of cats, aren't they? Then it increases the chance that a cat will eat the mouse and then the parasite will go back into the cat where it wants to go. Correct. Yes, that's precisely right. So... What's the big question that you're trying to answer with your research? We were very interested in how this brain parasite is manipulating mammalian fear. There are so many different things we could learn about either the mouse brain, fear in general. Also, since so many people are infected with this brain parasite, we don't really know what implications it might have on our behavior. These are all just open questions. So looking at it from a basic science standpoint, we want to know more. So for this particular study, we wanted to use a parasite that is weakened. It's not a normal parasite, and it doesn't form cysts in the brain. And we wanted to see what kind of effects that had on the behavior of mice. And if the animals were able to uh, recover from the infection and no longer the parasites disappear from the immune system working well, did the behavior effects go away as well? And we very surprisingly found that wasn't the case. So you take some mice, you infect them the same way as they would be infected normally with toxoplasma, and do they initially, when infected, even though this thing doesn't last for a lifetime in their brain, does it change their behaviour nonetheless and make them initially lose their fear of cats? Yes, absolutely. And then when the parasite leaves the body, for some reason that altered fear remains with the mouse afterwards? Yes. Do you have any theories as to how the parasite is therefore changing the brain of the mouse so that it is, when it's first infected, able to lose its fear of cats? Well, you can imagine a, a number of different ways. Most simply, the parasite is somehow able to go into the olfactory system, the smell part of the brain, and maybe target a specific neuron that's responsible for smelling cat urine and just Basically, they no longer smell the cat, so therefore they're no longer afraid of the cat. We don't think that that's the case. The olfactory system does seem to be pretty good still in the mice. We used a test called the hidden cookie test. We did exactly what it sounds like we did. We hit a cookie under some bedding and then see if the mice can find it, and they do. Another way that it could be affecting the brain in a permanent way would be if the parasite somehow is creating an immune response that the immune system changes permanently and the, the parasite doesn't have to persist. And it gets into nitty-gritty detail pretty fast going into that theory, but that's the one that I'm going to be following up on, looking at the mouse immune system.
So what are the implications then for humans? Because with so many of us being infected, we're mammals too. We know these organisms, toxoplasma, gets into our brains as well when we're infected. We know some people have suggested there might be a link with mental illnesses, including things like schizophrenia. Does this suggest then that even if we treated people for toxo, there might be some kind of legacy effect just through having been infected at some time? Yes, absolutely. So the the researchers who are uh, studying this potential link between schizophrenia and and toxoplasma have suggested that all we need to do is figure out how to cure the parasite, get rid of the parasite, and we'll cure schizophrenia. And it's kind of a a bit of a brazen statement. And and this study really shows that that may not be true. That we may have these long-standing changes in in the neurobiology that are not curable just by getting rid of the initial cause. Which is a bit of a worry, but at least you've warned us about it. (laughs) Wendy, thank you very much. That's Wendy Ingram. She's from the University of California at Berkeley, and she published the work she was describing there this week in the journal PLOS One. Now, another paper I've been looking at this week is that the international search giant Google has teamed up with the Raspberry Pi Foundation to try and get children learning more about programming in schools. And the problem that both organisations have identified is that whilst using computers is very high up most school curriculums these days, children are learning how to use computers, how to do word processing, make spreadsheets, databases and so on, rather than actually learning how computers work and how they might develop their own software and applications to run on those computers. So to try and solve this problem, about a year ago, it was much in the news that the Raspberry Pi Foundation was releasing this £30 Raspberry Pi computer that they hoped would be cheap enough to be a present that parents could perhaps give their children and also be cheap enough that users could be quite adventurous with them and not worry too much about breaking an expensive piece of kit because, well, the most you could lose would be your £30 Raspberry Pi. So... The idea is that perhaps school computer clubs could start getting children using these things, getting them programming them, getting them learning the skills that you need to work for technology companies in school rather than having to learn it later. And I think there's been this feeling that there was a golden age about 30 years ago, when I was growing up in the 1980s, actually, when computers were really quite simple. I had a BBC Micro when I was younger. Yeah, Model B, invented here in Cambridge. Invented here in Cambridge. And it was great fun because you turned the thing on, you went straight into programming language, and actually even to get it to load a game to play, you had to do some basic programming to tell that computer. You had a cassette player, did you? You load games off cassette? You had to load it off the cassette. It took a long time. You had to to really like the game. (laughs) It was 10 minutes, wasn't it, to load it up? But those machines were so simple that a 15-year-old kid could really understand how they worked and really start to program them quite effectively. But now computers have come on such a long way, they're really complicated beasts that, you know, even most adults don't have the faintest clue how the computers that we use work. So the idea is to try and turn that around and get get kids really interacting with computers. And so by having, what, the resource of Google together with a charitable foundation and, and a very easy, very cheap to use piece of equipment, then you put those two together and hopefully this will rekindle this programming interest. That's right. Google have released a tool called Coda. It's actually freely available on the web. So if you're a bit old to be in a school computer club, you can actually download it yourself at home and play with it. And it's designed to help you really easily develop websites with applications on there. 
And it walks you through the process the real developer would do in a company if they were developing a large-scale website with applications. So what language is it running then, Dominic Coded? Do you basically do something simple and graphical and it turns it into back-end code? Is that how it works? Um, actually, it's trying to get Trojan to actually write the program code itself using languages called HTML and JavaScript, which is what the web is, is built on. But there are tutorials in there which have been developed by Google, who are obviously really expert in doing this. And that's teaching kids at this early age these skills that they would need if they want to go into a career doing this. Why is this any better than going to the bookstore and buying teach yourself JavaScript or whatever in 24 hours? Because there are loads of those sort of almost like self-help books for, for computer geeks like us out there that you can buy. So why is this better? I mean, absolutely. That option has always been there to go out and buy the how to develop computer software for dummies books that you can buy in the bookstore. But the idea of this is it's something fun. It's something very interactive. It's something you can give to children at quite a young age, get them playing with it. And really quite quickly, they can start to get a reward seeing that things are coming together. And, and hopefully they'll be inspired to want to do this for a living. What do the Raspberry Pi people say about this? Are they seeing that the fact there aren't enough people getting programming is still a problem? Or do they think they are achieving their aim of getting more people programming? Because that was when we had them on this program maybe a year ago when it was launching. And that was, you know, David Braben, one of the people behind it, said here, that's exactly what the... the aim is so by tying up with google is that because there there aren't enough people actually uh, fulfilling the mission of raspberry pi i think there's a lot of work to do here and the raspberry pi project took off incredibly quickly they developed the computer they then thought that they would be developing the software over a period of years to get into schools it took off so very quickly that they've actually got i think a lot of work to do to get this software written for the kids to really have a nice environment they can program in Dominic, thank you very much. Now, as always, you can find more information, including the references for the stories we've been discussing here on The Naked Scientist, on our website. That's nakedscientist.com slash news. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with Dominic Ford. Now, our main topic for the week is citizen science. In the last few years, we've seen a really big rise in the number of projects that are trying to harness the power of people at home to do part of the work for the scientists behind these projects, partly because then they can maybe go off to the pub. Well, not really, I'm being facetious. But these citizen science projects allow scientists to get huge amounts of data very quickly and very cheaply. And that means you can feed that data in to become very high top quality research. Now, one of the biggest and first established of these projects was the astronomy website Galaxy Zoo. So I caught up with Karen Masters from the University of Portsmouth, who's the project scientist for the site. Galaxy Zoo is basically a website. It's a place where you can go and look at images of galaxies that have been taken in large astronomical surveys. And you've shown a picture of the galaxy and you asked a series of simple questions about what you see. And you, you enter that information. And then the Galaxy Zoo science team and those of us behind the site take those information. We collect typically 20 to 40 answers for each image. And we use that information to figure out what is the most likely thing that that galaxy looks like, the most likely type of galaxy that that is. And that's a piece of information we can use to study galaxy evolution to try to understand how galaxies fit into the universe, how they change and evolve, where they came from. Now, we hear a lot about very sophisticated computer algorithms for recognising features and images. Are your volunteers really better than what computers could do? Actually, yes, they are. Billions of years of evolution have made humans extremely good at pattern recognition. 
it is extremely hard to teach a computer to recognize the kinds of patterns that humans recognize every day. It's not to say that computers might not catch up, and in fact, the Galaxy Zoo information has been used already and is continuing to be used to help train computers to get better at classifying galaxies. But right now, there's really nothing that is as good as a person looking at a picture and saying, that's what I see. I suppose the first challenge you faced when you set this up must have been finding a big pool of volunteers to give you this data. How did you go about finding people? It initially started with a million Sloan images, Sloan Digital Sky Survey images. And the thought was that if we put up those million images, we might get, I don't know, a few thousand people interested. And, you know, eventually, over a period of a few years, you'd get one classification per galaxy. So the launch of this site, this was in 2007, and it was big news then to launch a citizen science website. And so the news that this site was going live was covered on the BBC website, and it was immensely popular immediately. And in fact, it surpassed everyone's expectations. Those one million galaxies were classified 40 times over in 18 months. And it sort of got to the point where we had these 40 classifications per galaxy. It sounds like overkill, but we've learned that that's extremely helpful because that allows us to use those information to work out not only the most likely type of galaxy, but how likely it is, how confident people are. Because if everyone says the same thing, it's obviously easy. But if there's some disagreement, that's a piece of information we can use to measure how confident we are in the classification. You said you got an initial boost from the BBT website. How many users are now involved in Galaxy Zoo? Well, Galaxy Zoo, because it was so successful, it inspired the creation of something that became called the Zooniverse. And the Zooniverse is a collection of similar projects. So the things they have in common are that they show data to people over the internet, and that's either images or audio or movies, some kind of data where humans are better at extracting the information from that data than a computer would be. So there's a whole variety of different universe projects, not only astronomy now, but also looking at animals in the Serengeti. And to classify in any of those projects, you now become a member of the Zooniverse. And there are over 860,000 people who've signed up for an account at the Zooniverse. So that's quite an incredible army of volunteers you've got there. How did you pick all of these projects for the Zooniverse? Do academics come to you and say, I've got this research problem, could you ask your army to help with it? Yeah, that's exactly right. The Zooniverse has a sort of an ethos for what makes a good Zooniverse project. Uh, There's a proposal system now. It's a funded project. There's a proposal system for researchers to come in and suggest good projects. And we're also always sort of on the lookout for things that sound like they could be cool. And there was a new one launched just this week looking at images of plankton from under the water. But, I mean, the common factor of all of these Zooniverse projects and the ethos is that These are projects that have a real science question behind them. So you're doing real science online. You're contributing to real science. So it's data or information that is not easy to process with a computer, can't be looked at by a small research team, but that by involving hundreds of thousands of citizen scientists, we can actually answer a research question you couldn't answer any other way. What, to your mind, are the real highlights that's come out of the science of the Zooniverse over the last five years? Well, for me, I've been very excited in how Galaxy Zoo helps us to find interesting samples of rare galaxies. So the two basic kinds of galaxies are spiral galaxies and elliptical galaxies. And the standard picture is that the spirals are blue and the ellipticals are red. What Galaxy Zoo has found is really interesting, small, but you know, large enough to do studies on, samples of blue ellipticals and red spirals. And they might sound like just intriguing curiosities, but they're not. They actually tell us about evolutionary processes about how 
spirals might be turning into ellipticals and how star formation can be turning off in these galaxies. And so Galaxy Zoo, by providing such large samples that you can find small numbers, it's just been a hugely amazing resource. Thanks to Karen Masters from Galaxy Zoo. And of course, you can contribute to those projects on galaxyzoo.org or zooniverse.org. And I think what I find really inspiring about those projects is that they've been so successful, they've made research papers where people at home who've contributed have actually ended up as authors on papers in peer-reviewed journals, which is fantastic. So they should too, because at the end of the day, they're doing the work. But what about if they're young? Because some journals, and I know of one scientist who refused to let his son, who actually made a seminal discovery that led to the piece of work, not being included on the publication because he was only 12 at the time. Well, there certainly have been school children, I think, who've been involved in, in Galaxy Do, so that's very good to see. Pretty good to apply to university with a publication under your belt already in an academic journal. And if you want to talk about galaxies, of course, we'd like to hear from you because we've asked you our quiz this week. Can you tell us how many galaxies you think there are in the known universe by tweeting at Naked Scientists or you can email chris at thenakedscientists.com. Of course, citizen science projects don't just allow us to investigate things in galaxies far, far away, but also projects that are right here on our doorstep. And now's the time of year when spiders begin to invade our homes as they go searching for mates. But we don't know a huge amount about how and when this happens or which spiders do this. So a group of researchers from the Society of Biology are asking for volunteers to snap photos of the spiders that they spot, presumably before they vacuum them up, to help us to understand how these animals behave. We sent Ginny Smith off on a spider hunt around Cambridge. We'll hear how she got on in a minute. But first, University of Gloucestershire ecologist Adam Hart is with us. Hello, Adam. Hi, Chris. So tell us about this project. What are you trying to do and why? Yeah, well, last year the Society of Biology and I set up the Flying Ants Survey, which was a big success last summer and it's run again this year. And what we realised is that there's a a real enthusiasm for these kind of charismatic but slightly sort of uh, marmite animals like flying ants. And we started thinking, well, what else comes into that category? And this time of year, we noticed on Twitter last year, lots of people using the hashtag spider survey. And it's a very predictable kind of emergence of these particularly male spiders roaming around looking for mates. So we thought it would be a nice way to capitalise on that enthusiasm and also find something out about it because really you can't study these sorts of things across the country without having lots and lots of people involved. So citizen science is an absolutely brilliant way to try and look at the emergence, to try and look at how it maps to local temperature, weather conditions and all that sort of thing. So what are the questions that you're seeking to answer with the data that the people at home will be generating for you? Well, really, in this first sort of stage, it's almost quantifying exactly what's happening every year. When do spiders start coming out? How long does it last for? Is it a pattern that's seen across the country or is it something that's only seen towards the south of the country? It's really at at this stage a kind of look-see, simply because although we know a great deal about how spider venom, for example, and the production of silk, and we know lots of very fine detail, we actually don't know that much about the more general ecology, particularly when it comes to the timing of these sorts of events. How will you process all the data? Because you've got this app, people will use it, we'll hear how Ginny got on with it in a second, but you'll get all this data coming in with coordinates and pictures. Has someone got to trawl through all that? The short answer to that is that I have a PhD student who's helping me out with this, but actually it's not quite as onerous as it might seem because we set this up so that the data goes straight into a spreadsheet and that spreadsheet can then be interrogated more or less automatically and start producing detailed maps and detailed progressions of maps and animations and things. So the setting up of this was actually done, a lot of it was done for the Flying Ant Survey. What's 
quite important i think is with these sorts of surveys is that we've asked people for some very simple information and once we've got that we can start to produce these patterns and and maps and just give us the web address if people would like to find out more how to do the survey please adam Two ways to do it. One is societyofbiology.org forward slash spider, or if you just search for spider survey on um, Google, you'll get straight to the survey. Thanks, Adam. That was Adam Hart from the University of Gloucestershire. Earlier this week, we sent Jenny Smith out on a spider hunt. She went to Queen's College in Cambridge, and she met up with Rebecca Nesbitt from the Society of Biology to see what they could flush out. OK, so we're going to have a wander around the older parts of Queen's now and see what we can find. I can see a pipe in the corner there that has lots of webs on it. What have we got going on over there? Absolutely, already I can see there's quite a lot here and it looks like these spiders have been allowed to live here for a while, which they'll be very happy about. Oh, what's that? I can see what looks like quite a big spider there. Ah, yes. Now this looks like the exuvia. So when a spider grows, whereas our skeleton can grow gradually, the spider has an exoskeleton, and what it needs to do is, in order to grow, it has to shed that skin, and this is a skin that it's left behind. OK, so after a bit more hunting, we've finally managed to find one of these big house spiders. It's pretty creepy. So what do we need to do with your app? So what we need to do is first make sure it's a tegenaria spider and identify whether it's a male or female. So if we take a closer look, what you can see is that although spiders have eight legs, at the front it looks like they've got mini legs and these are called pedipalps. And what you can see in the males is they look a bit like they've got a pair of boxing gloves on the end of them. (laughs) that's where the sperm is stored so what i can see for this one it does have those large boxing gloves on the end of its pedipalps so this one is a male so what i'm going to do is first i'm going to take a picture of it which does involve getting a bit close i'm afraid Ginny, are you sure you don't want to take the picture (laughs) no no i'm holding the recording equipment it's fine Is it okay if you trap it under a glass before you take the picture? Absolutely, and that can often make for quite a clear picture, in fact. So here we go, taking the picture. Great, okay, so you've got a picture of this thing. Now, what do we do to actually send the data to you? So we have an app, and it's called Spider in the House. Once you go to the homepage, you can see Enter Your Record... The phone should be able to send in the latitude and longitude and it asks you which room was the spider in. Then we're going to upload a photo. And what happens to all this information? Well, we are so pleased so far that we've got well over 3,000 records. What we're particularly going to be looking at is when we're seeing these spiders. And because we see them particularly at this time of year when the male's become more nomadic we know that it's breeding season so by recording them appearing in our houses we know when the males are out and about on the lookout for a female and we're going to look at geographical differences around the UK and hopefully we're going to have quite a few years worth of data and we may be able to look at weather conditions as well. Rebecca Nesbitt from the Society of Biology, hunting for spiders in Queen's College, Cambridge, with Ginny Smith. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with Dominic Ford. This week we're talking about citizen science projects that you can get involved with at home. In a minute, the project that's got people logging roadkill and where's the happiest 
or most miserable place in Britain. If you'd like to get in touch with us with a comment or a question, you can tweet at Naked Scientists or you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. Dominic. Now, one reason why people often get involved in citizen science is to try and help solve the problems that they see all around them. And one project doing just that is Project Splatter, which tracks UK roadkill. Now, that may sound a bit grisly, but the team hope that the data they get from their project will improve animal conservation in the future. Kate Lambert caught up with one of the founders, Sarah Perkins, from Cardiff University. Project Splatter is a citizen science research project that is collating UK wildlife roadkill using social media. So our citizen scientists are tweeting when they see a squashed badger or a fox or anything as small as a mouse and letting us know about it. We collate those data and we give feedback to our community of citizen scientists. So why we're doing it is because there is actually no year-round survey of wildlife roadkill in the UK. We have snapshots, which has revealed interesting patterns, but we don't know what happens year-round. So we want to know where the wildlife roadkill is, what it is, and when it happens. And then ultimately, we hope to be able to reduce that wildlife roadkill. So what do the snapshots tell us? How much of a problem is roadkill for the UK's wildlife? Well, we've only been running since February of this year, and we hope to run for another two years. But in the six months or so that we've been running, our citizen scientists that we call splatter spotters have reported 3,300 data points to us. So we know that there's quite a problem for our UK wildlife. Our top most spotted animals include the badger, the rabbit, the fox, and the hedgehog has just started to appear in there. So we know that some of our favourite mammals and birds are up there in the top species that are road-killed. You mentioned hedgehogs and badgers there. Those are relatively, for UK wildlife, quite large animals. Is it the big ones that tend to get spotted? Do we tend to miss the shrews and things like that? Yes, we may well do. And the nice thing about running this as a citizen science project is not only do our splatter spotters report data to us, they question us. So on Twitter and Facebook, we've been asked questions. Hey, what are you guys going to do about observer bias? Aren't we just reporting the things we want to report? And that could be. So there could be some observer bias. So what we have to do is back that up with work by some of our research scientists where we are actually driving along routes and verifying which data we see and looking to see which species aren't reported. Why do you think people get involved in these sorts of projects? Why are people so keen to share their data and what they see with scientists? Yeah, it's interesting. I think people see that by reporting something to us that is potentially very sad, driving past a dead fox on the road, you know, nobody really likes to see that. They're turning something rather sad into a positive in that we might be able to mitigate against some of those roadkill deaths. So people are really interested in seeing what we can do with those data. You mentioned you've got 3,000 data points and that things like hedgehogs are just starting to appear. Why would things like hedgehogs being killed on the roads not be a constant year-round? Well, actually, we think there's something happening with hedgehogs this year where we've had this quite nice dry summer and the hedgehogs may have found it difficult to find food. What we do 
with our reports. Every week we feed back to our community of scientists by doing something called the splatter report. And it was only in the last two months that hedgehogs even came in the top five of that splatter report. And so we've really noticed this exponential increase. And so we think we're picking up this behavioral pattern where they're having to search for more food. And that's putting them into contact with the roads more frequently. They're ranging further. And that could be what's producing these greater number of roadkills seasonally. Is it a good or a bad sign that animals are being seen on this splatter report? I mean, I know it must look bad, but Mm. does an increased number mean that there are more of them about in the first place? It might do, but there are a lot of wildlife surveys that go on as well. So we have quite a good idea of the abundance of some species in the UK. And with the hedgehog, we know some great work by the People's Trust for Endangered Species that hedgehogs are actually in decline. We used to have in the order of tens of millions in the UK, and now we've got below a million. So the fact that we're seeing more on the roads isn't necessarily an indication that that species is increasing in abundance. It could be that it's actually more threatened. If it's a potential indicator of a diminishing population, what can we do? Can these reports in some way help us feed back into the loop of conservation? That's what we hope. We run this as an open database. So anybody who's interested in the data can contact us and we will send it. So currently we do send our records to biological record centres. Any of the wildlife trusts that are interested can have data the birding organisations, and a lot of the badger groups are interested in our data too. And actually recently, one of the badger groups contacted me because if they get a female badger in the spring that is run over on the road, their volunteers will immediately go out and search the area and look for the badger cubs to rehabilitate them because, of course, without the mother, those cubs won't survive. Sarah Perkins from Project Splatter talking to Kate Lamble. And you can tweet your splatter spottings to at Project Splatter or you can post them on Facebook at facebook.com slash splatterproject. You don't need a PhD to do science of global significance. At least that's according to the microbiologist Andy Whiteley. When he was in the UK, he mapped the microbes hidden in the soil nationwide by hiring scientists to send him samples from right across the country. But when he moved recently to the University of Western Australia in Perth and he wanted to repeat the project, he knew it was never going to be possible without some help from the public. So he started a project that launched just this month and it's called Microblitz. Microblitz is basically citizen science for the 21st century. We're looking at what microbes are hidden away in the soil and where are they. That's important for a couple of reasons. The first one really is is that when actually plants grow and basically we have productivity above ground, half of that circle is actually below ground. So these are the microbes that are sitting there in the ground that are helping. And it's really about asking the question, where are they and what are they doing? And these microbes are actually really diverse. So, for example, when you put your footprint down in a paddock or a field, there's about 10 trillion individual bacterial cells in that 10 trillion 10 trillion in that footprint and about 10,000 species of bacteria as well we think at the minute that's an estimate and it's probably an underestimate so there's this whole world of biodiversity that's hidden away below the ground and this project really is to empower the general public to help us to take samples out in that natural environment to actually work out in terms of the microbes what's there and where are they if i put my foot down on the beach here because we're looking at the swan river in perth Will I get different bacteria in the soils beside this river compared with somewhere else in the world? 
We think there are some common bacteria that are present all over the world, so globally distributed. But yes, in terms of different habitats and different environments, we do see different species and different relative proportions of those species as well. So there are what we call biomes of bacteria. There are certain types of bacteria that always associate with soil. Certain types would, for example, associate with that sandy beach where you're standing. And, for example, certain types of bacteria that will associate with the water that's actually flowing down the Swan River that's in front of us. So what gave you the idea for doing this project in the first place? The original mapping part of the project was a project that was happening in the UK in 2007 when I worked at the Centre for Ecology and Hydrology. And the project really came about asking the question, OK, we have this landmass in the UK and it has very different uses in terms of agriculture and various other grasslands and things such as that. And asking the question, well... Do those different uses of the landscape actually change the microbial communities that are present within the different types of soils and landscapes? So if I have farmland that's been intensively farmed over many years, I get different bacteria there than, for instance, if I've got a lawn in someone's garden? For sure. We think actually that we are manipulating the landscape quite a lot. And so the original idea really was, well, let's just go and sample out in the UK. So we had this survey which piggybacked on a survey which was called the Countryside Survey 2007. And that was the first time that anybody tried to do a a microbial map of a country. So how did you map Britain? Did you get someone to send in samples of soil from the entire country that you could look at the DNA in there then? It was actually a formal scientific survey done at five kilometres resolution. So it was people trained as scientists to actually go out there and take the samples for us. The problem came in terms of taking that map that we did in the UK and trying, for example, to do it in Australia, and Western Australia especially, is the size and scale. So it's 22 times the size of the UK, and it's also one twentieth of the population. So it would take us 60, 100, 150 years to actually do the similar effort of sampling over here. So that's where the real idea came to make it into a citizen science project where we engage with the local public to help us out with a large-scale mapping. Okay, so we're down to about 10 centimetres. Essentially what we're going to do is dig straight down that side of the soil and put it straight into a bag. We need about 300 grams of sample. That's important because it gives us enough sample for the molecular analysis, but also it gives us enough sample for chemical analysis. So we'll measure things like pH, carbon, nitrogen, phosphorus the sample. Once the sample's mixed, we remove anything that's large in terms of roots or rocks or shoots. So there's a bit there that we're just going to throw away and the first thing we do is load one of the tubes for DNA extraction and analysis so these are very small screw top 2 mil tubes half a gram, there we go, screw the top back on and there's a second tube which is our backup sample so this will go in the freezer and if the first extraction doesn't work for whatever reason we have a backup sample that's as simple as that for the sample so we have about 300 grams of soil in the bag we have two tubes which are the DNA extraction tubes in the meantime, while somebody's doing this, somebody else can be filling in the, the shipping form, which essentially tells us where the sample was, time, date, and everything then goes into a prepaid envelope. And there you go, you've just become a microblitzer. That arrives back in the laboratory. How do you then process that and marry all of this data together? Samples arrive back in the laboratory. They are, first of all, determined for dry weight, so we weigh a portion of it and then basically weigh again, so that gives us moisture content, which we think is going to be quite important with the samples. The samples then go into a freezer, so we store them all frozen until we basically take them out as batches of, say, 96. Once the DNA is extracted, then we use various molecular biology means, such as PCR, to work out and sequencing to work out actually the microbes that are present within the sample. And because you are keeping 
a version of the sample in pristine condition in the freezer, I suppose that in the long term, if you have further questions subsequently you want to ask of that sample, you can go back to it and, and ask those questions as technology and science evolves and moves forward. Exactly. One of the key things about microblitz is not just the data that we get back from it now, it's actually the legacy in the future. So essentially we have a biological bank of samples, which is the snapshot when we did the samples, and as different questions become more relevant, we can always go back to that biobank and ask those questions again without having to do the extra effort. Andy Whiteley from the University of Western Australia and microblitz with a z.com.au is the web address if you'd like to find out a bit more. Now, many of the projects we've discussed so far involve scientists getting hold of your data, but what do you at home get? Well, you could get happy. Mappiness is a project to track happiness around the country, but creator George McCarran, who's at the University of Sussex, said there's a feel-good benefit for the participants too. Mappiness is a project that's interested in mapping people's happiness in relation to other elements of their environment. And it does that with an iPhone app that people download for free. They get beeped twice a day, much like getting a text message. And then we ask them questions about how they feel, who they're with, what they're doing. It takes about 20 seconds. And then because we get the GPS coordinates from the phone, we can also join that with various kinds of information about the environment they're in, weather, land cover, habitat type, air pollution levels and so on and build really detailed models of what it is that contributes to people's happiness. What sorts of questions are you able to ask doing this that you couldn't have done with a traditional scientific study before the age of the smartphone and citizen science? The questions that we ask are fairly simple. You could ask those in, in traditional ways, but the beauty of this is that we manage to reach a lot of people on a lot of occasions affordably and that we get an objective measure of where they are so that we can then add in objective information about the environment. So in the past, you might have relied on saying, well, how happy do you feel and is the environment where you are nice? But unfortunately, those things might be correlated just because, you know, optimistic people say they're happy and they say they're in a nice environment and therefore the, the relationship is sort of less convincing. What's about the recruitment process? Because you're automatically selecting for an audience subset, aren't you? They've got to be people who own a certain species of phone. You're using iPhones. Therefore, they might be a certain subset of the population who are rich enough to do that, who are young enough to, to operate one, and also motivated. Yes, that's absolutely true. And if there's you know one biggest limitation of this study, that's probably it. I think how much that matters depends on what question you're interested in. So if you're mainly interested in income, it might be a big problem that you don't have anyone on very low incomes. So it is true that our sample are richer and better educated and younger than the average person. I think that problem will get less over time as more and more people have smartphones. And hopefully if we're able to support a wider range of smartphones and maybe some cheaper ones too. The self-selection issue is also interesting, but we do try to make sure that we don't kind of say, you know, are you a person who loves green space? Then sign up to Mappiness. We don't talk a lot about our hypotheses during the study or when we, we sign people up. And so we hope that we're not getting too biased from that. But as I say, that is the biggest limitation with this. But it's also how we're able to reach enough people that we can say something meaningful about the hypotheses that we have. How many people are taking part? From day to day, we have about a 1,000 people, I think, at this point. And the number that we've had over the course of the study, which has been running for about three years now, is getting towards 60,000. That's a stupendous number, isn't it? So what sorts of trends are emerging? What are you finding? Our main piece of published research that's come out so far says that, as you might expect, people are significantly happier in natural environments than they are in cities. 
And that's after we control for other things that might go along with being a natural environment, such as it being nice weather, it being the weekend. And you might say we knew that already. Everyone knows that green space is nice. But I think the key thing here is to be able to put really hard numbers on it. And so to prove statistically that that's the case, and also to say, well, how big is that effect? And we can say actually that the size of that effect is very much on a par with other things that you would expect make people happy, such as being with friends or, say, watching television rather than doing the washing up. So are there any bits of Britain that you can say those are real hotspots for being really, really happy or conversely, maybe being less happy? When we split up the country, then we find that some places in the far north of Scotland seem particularly happy. And that's true if we include only people who live there, not people who might be visiting. And we found that generally Slough comes bottom, which is almost too intuitive in a way, you know, given that there were programmes making Slough happy and so on. The problem generally with doing this is what geographers call the modifiable aerial unit problem. So if you cut the country into different kinds of slices, you might get different answers. And that's why we haven't published a happiness map so far which would be an obvious thing to do otherwise for a project called Mappiness. Most scientists say that a very big proportion of the cost of doing research like this originally was the data collection. You're passing that burden onto the people who take part in the study. What are they getting out of it in return? There's potentially a, an altruistic motivation where people like to be contributing to research that you know might have results that are of social value. But of course, there is also an individual motivation to get some really detailed information back about your own happiness. So you can look at graphs, you can download maps. And so people get that data back. And for some people, that's really valuable. And actually, I just think that being asked to think about your happiness even if you never download the data, does make people more aware of how they feel and potentially also, over time, puts them in a better mood. I think there's pretty robust data that shows that if you do that, you do enjoy more well-being, don't you, if you're asked to focus on the things that you're happy about? That's right. And in fact, that's certainly what we find. It's important. In fact, say we're trying to look at trends across the whole country. It's very important that we control for how long people have been taking part at any given moment. And obviously, as the study goes on, more people have been taking part for longer. Otherwise, we get misled by the fact that people who have been taking part for longer report happiness that's significantly higher than people who've been taking part for a shorter period. There may also be an element where people get kind of more fed up with the study over time. And therefore, when they've been taking part for a long period, most of the time, they're not very willing to take part. And only when they're in a good mood, will they, in fact, give us a response. But I certainly hope, and as you say, existing evidence would seem to indicate that people will be happier over time from taking part in this sort of study. George McCowan from the University of Sussex. And finally, Hannah Critlow surveys safety. This week, we take a deep breath and sniff out the answer to this question that Callend wrote in with. Is there a safe way to consume nicotine? Is smoking tobacco a lot worse for your health than snuff? So what are the relative harms of nicotine-containing products? Are patches safer than e-cigarettes? Is snuff safer than smoking? We crack into the data with Professor Nutt. Hello, my name is David Nutt. I'm a psychopharmacologist from Imperial College in London, and I'm also chair of the Independent Scientific Committee on Drugs. And we've recently done quite a detailed analysis of the relative harms of different nicotine and tobacco-containing products. We use this new technique of multi-criteria decision analysis to try to understand the relative harms of drugs and to make more rational, sensible decisions about what we do with drugs, including tobacco. Well, he's perfectly placed to provide the answer to this question of the week, then. So people often say, you know, is snuff or snus 
as it's known in Sweden and popular in Sweden, is that safer than cigarettes? And the answer is it's very much safer. Recent data suggests that snus is about 20 times safer than cigarettes. And there are many reasons for this. The first is it's actually a specially prepared form of tobacco that has taken out most of the carcinogens that are added to tobacco and cigarettes to make them smoke better. The second is it's not smoke, it doesn't get in the lungs and there's no carbon monoxide to damage the heart. So snuff is considerably safer than smoking cigarettes. But what about electronic cigarettes, which vaporise nicotine and deliver it to the lungs? So these also look to be very much safer than conventional cigarettes and possibly even safer than snus itself. And what about the passive risk of e-cigarettes for those around the smoker? The current situation with e-cigarettes is that we think they have a much lower propensity to cause harm to other people as well as to the user. It's not been extensively studied, but you certainly don't get the contamination of the air, the carcinogens that you get from smoked cigarettes. Whether there's enough nicotine floating around to actually cause a degree of pharmacological action on people in the vicinity of e-cigarettes is not yet known, but I would be surprised if they had a anything like as big a problem as passive smoking as to current cigarettes. And partly because of this, patches are deemed to be safest of them all. If you'd like further details, visit the Independent Science Committee on Drugs website. Now, closing the show, let's sleep on this question that Martin Taper wrote in with. I've been affected by the moon all my life. I medicate myself to sleep in a full moon, otherwise I don't sleep. I am also affected by air pressure in a similar way. When the air pressure is high and it's full or near full moon, I'm unable to sleep with that medication. And if I do partially sleep, I have wild dreams. When the opposite is the case, I sleep like the dead. Is there a scientific explanation for this? So could the phase of the moon affect how you sleep? Or could air pressure affect the content of your dreams? Hannah Critchlow. And if you can help Hannah, then please send in your thoughts, comments or experiences to chris at thenakedscientists.com. You can also tweet at Naked Scientists or find us on our Facebook page. That is it for this week. The answer to the quiz question, we think that there are something like 100 billion galaxies in the known universe, although with the recent discovery of dwarf galaxies, that number may be 10 times higher. Thank you to all of our citizen science contributors this week and also to Dominic Ford for joining me. The production was by Kate Lamble. Next time, we're exploring the science of sleep. What is it for? I mean, after all, we spend a third of our lives doing it, so it must be for some reason. Join us next week to find out. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the Wellcome Trust and the EPSRC. My name's Chris Smith, and thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.